Hey, if you're a person who complains about Christmas feeling like it comes earlier and earlier every year because the advertising and the decorations and the malls and everything else, then I want you to consider a guy by the name of Micah. Micah's a prophet in, uh, in the Old Testament. He's considered one of the minor prophets. And he talked about the birth of Jesus 700 years before it happened. I mean, if you want to talk about something starting earlier, 700 years, that's an awful long time. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Micah chapter 5, verse 1 to 5, and if you don't know where the book of Micah is, in the beginning of your Bible, there is a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. Um, Micah chapter 5, verse 1 to 5, and so I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Here's what it says. Marshal your troops, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times." Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she, is when she who is in labor bears a son and rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And then, sorry, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we're looking into your word and as we're looking at uh, this prophecy of the coming of you to earth in the form of, of a child, of a baby, I ask, Lord, that our eyes would be open and our hearts would be open to whatever it is you have for us today to be able to look into your word and receive from it. In your name I pray. Amen. So I mentioned to you that we're talking about a guy by the name of Micah. And Micah is this prophet who lived um, before the Assyrian captivity is what it's called, or the Assyrian exile. Um, this is also, of course, before the Babylonian Empire came in and took things over, like with Nebuchadnezzar. And so you had the Assyrian Empire, and then you had the Babylonian Empire, and then you had the Persian Empire, all consecutively coming in and taking over things. And so... Micah is talking about things in a time right before the Assyrian Empire comes in. He predicted the fall of Samaria in 722 BC. And the bulk of his ministry probably took place somewhere around 750 to 725 BC. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 26, verse 17 to 18, he actually refers to Micah prophesying during the time of King Hezekiah. I know I'm throwing a lot of names at you, but these are just giving you a context and an understanding of where we are in the story. Micah lived in and around the same time as people like Isaiah, uh, as Hosea, and probably Amos. And his prophecies addressed Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Samaria was the capital of the, uh, the northern kingdom. 
It was the capital of the northern kingdom that was referred to at this point as Israel. At this point, Israel is divided into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and you have the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And the southern kingdom is made up of uh, those who were from the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. And so they're kind of coming together there. And so this is what he's dealing with. And even though Micah ministered in Judah some of his messages were directed towards the kingdom to the north of Israel. And he had a strong sense in his writing of a need for justice in society. And so whether he was talking about the proper administration of justice within the courts, in Micah chapter 3, verse 11, or chapter 7, verse 3, through fairness in the marketplace, that's Micah 6, 10 to 11, or even dealing with the authority or dealing with authority and power responsible um, for people, right? Like, so dealing with these things in a responsible manner. And you find that all over the book of Micah. And so he's a very justice-oriented guy. And, and the message that God had for him was very justice-oriented. In a person's relationship with God, um, Micah's attitude towards this and his understanding, and I would confess to you that you actually find this within the New Testament as well, that the personal relationship with God is primary and it determines how all other relationships function. And that's Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And so since justice and mercy are the Lord's requirements, right? We're told that we are to uh, walk humbly and seek justice in dealing with others. These are requirements uh, and it causes us to, in our relationship with other people, be humble and, and to act justly towards others. In other words, not taking advantage of people and those kinds of things. And so what is fair should be measured only against the standard that God has already showed mankind to be good. This is what Micah is doing. And so what he's essentially doing is he's calling out the political system. He's calling out the economic system. He's calling out even the religious system, saying, listen, you guys, this isn't good. What we're doing here is unjust. There needs to be a better way. And so it's a call back to righteousness. It's a call back to being a justice-oriented people who humble themselves before their God. It's a call back to proper worship. Um, and so in this proper worship, just like Amos, uh, Micah hated the religious, any religious system that had more ritual than it had relationship. And, um, and within that relationship, when there is something between you and God, that there's, there's this thing called repentance that needs to take place. And so he admonished the people to commit themselves completely to the Lord. And it meant to walk humbly with God, to forego worship of other gods, right? So he's bringing them back to the original intention of what this relationship with God actually is supposed to look like. And they were to forego anything that would be a source of confidence for the believer that took away from God being their confidence. You catch that? So it's, it's this idea of here in North America, we have... We have very little uh, practical application of what it means to be completely dependent on God in terms of daily living. And by that, what I mean is the vast majority of us, when we're hungry, we can go down to the grocery store and we can buy a loaf of bread. 
It's not like we, the vast majority of North Americans have to sit still and pray in, in, in almost this desperation for God to provide the bread. We're able to get up, go to the store, buy a loaf of bread. And so we have this dependency on self. We have this dependency on our ability to be autonomous, that kind of thing. And, and what Micah is saying here is that there is this need of God's people to remove anything that they feel gives them the security that takes away from their dependency on God, right? So it's the idea of making God primary. Now, one of Micah's most famous sayings, which is what we're going to deal with today, was a Bethlehem prophecy. This is Micah chapter 5, verse 2 to 6. The Messianic concept is related to the Davidic monarchy. We're talking about David's line, David's monarchy. And it'd be quite natural to expect the birth of the future king to be connected to David's city, Bethlehem. I mean, it just makes sense that that would be a natural connection. And it's quoted in the New Testament as a, as a messianic prophecy in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. And Micah made two very accurate predictions or prophecies here. He says, first, that the Messiah would be the descendant of King David. You know, David's the guy who killed Goliath, if you remember that story. Uh, second is that he would be born in the little town of Bethlehem, and Micah was 100% correct on both these counts. Now, the story of Jesus saturates the entire narrative of the Bible. If there's like an are ever um, important, if there's this overarching story, a meta-narrative, you could say, uh, within the biblical text, it's, it's the story of, of God within the text. And so Jesus saturates the Bible. And the prophecies of his first coming, his first advent, are found all throughout the Old Testament. And then you got these allusions to him that are, um, they, they come up in these smaller ways, you might say micro ways, as many people and events hint to the work that he would accomplish. There's a couple of scholars that have some things to say about this. One of them is J. Uh, Barton Payne, he found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament alone that somehow point or describe or reference the coming of the Messiah. You have a guy by the name of Alfred uh, Edersheim, and he found four, 456 Old Testament uh, points of interest that point to the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. Conservatively, what most evangelicals agree on in terms of scholars is that Jesus fulfilled 300, roughly around 300 of those prophecies while he was in his earthly ministry. More than 300 of them were fulfilled when Jesus came to earth, and many will be fulfilled, of course, when he returns for his second coming. But one of the things is certain is that if Jesus was just human, and this is so important, okay? If Jesus was just human, he could not have orchestrated history to his benefit. You know, by that what I mean is, um, specifically to these two prophecies, right? That, that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem, right? So that's one of them. And that he was going to be in the line of David. If he was just a mere human being, there's no way he would have been able to orchestrate that. Why? Well, because we don't get to determine our genealogy. Like, I don't get to suddenly choose 
who my dad is, right? My dad is my dad. My mom is my mom. I don't get to choose where I'm born. These are not things that are within my control. And so if Jesus was just a mere human being, there's no way that he was going to be able to orchestrate that activity. People have no control over where they're born, what family they're going to belong to, and that's the whole point of these two prophecies, that Jesus was not just a mere human being. So as we walk forward through Micah, if we look at verse 1, it says he's laid siege against us. This verse tells us that they're in this troubled time. It's actually a terrible time for Israel. What we find is that there are events that lead up to the exile and there's experiences within exile that are horrific for Israel. It's a time where God is saying, listen, like if you're not going to smarten up on your own, I'm going to have to do something to make you smarten up, right? Like parents have said this to our kids a lot probably over the years. You've heard it likely when you were growing up. But this is of a troubled time. It's a terrible time. It's a time of siege. And so then in this time of siege, we find that there's deprivation of food. Like there's even starvation that's taking place here. It speaks of the humiliation of a king. And we find actually that that happens later to the king Zedekiah, who his enemies, he killed, his enemies killed his sons right in front of him right before plucking out his eyes. And we read that in 2 Kings 25, verse 6 to 7. And so that is that prophecy of, the, of verse 1 where it says that they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. It's this humiliating thing that takes place. It's like slapping with an open hand in the middle of a fist fight. It's a humiliating thing to the person who experiences the slap. And this verse then sets the stage for verse 2 where Micah begins this prophecy of Bethlehem the redemption of Judah. In verse 2, it's filled with hope, but it's important to understand that this hope comes out of a place of difficulty, and that's where hope is most pronounced. That's where hope is most, I would suggest you understood, most experienced, most counted on. And this is the hopeful words that were coming. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, out of Bethlehem will come a ruler, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now, Bethlehem means actually house of bread, and Ephrathah is this word that means fruitfulness. And these names then suggest a very different picture than the one we saw in the preceding verse. In the preceding verse, they were under siege, and so there were people that were starving. But what we have here is, is this language of, of Judah being a house of bread and Ephrathah being this fruitfulness, right? So it is a fruitful house of bread, an abundance of stuff coming from them. And these names suggest a very different picture than what you see in verse 1. But they also provide a link between, uh, with David and Israel's, great, like Israel's greatest king because of his father, Jesse. You see, Jesse was an Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah. This is 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12, and also 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 and 8. The word Ephrathah apparently is derived from um, the, the region of the clans, right? There's a lot of clans that were uh, taken up in, in this time. And so Ephrathah, uh, or an Ephrathite, was, uh, was a person who was part of this clan that was in the region of Ephrathah. Uh, and the region of Ephrathah is this region in which Bethlehem is located, but it's probably originated... Um, 
in one of the clans in the tribes of Judah. And so when Matthew, I know that's a lot, right? But when Matthew alludes to this verse, he speaks of Bethlehem, land of Judah, rather than Bethlehem, land of Ephrathah. And it's not saying that it isn't the same place, but one of the things we have to understand is that there are two Bethlehems that are in Israel, and so which one we're talking about matters. And so the one where it is the Ephrathah Judah, right, or Bethlehem Judah uh, of the people of Ephrathah, we're, we're talking about this region where this particular Bethlehem would be. And so the Bethlehem that we understand today that is a little ways outside of Jerusalem is the one that we're actually referencing. In verse 2, it continues on. It says, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel. And so Bethlehem is this small town located just a few miles from Jerusalem, like the grand city, right? Like when we talk about, hey, you head to the big city, the big city for them was Jerusalem, and it wasn't that far away. God's choice of Bethlehem instead of Jerusalem is kind of a typical thing for God. You see, God has a tendency to use or begin his redemptive processes using lowly, unassuming people, places. Uh, There are many examples of that in the scriptures, but the examples that most point or are most on point for our particular text would be things like God's choice of David, Jesse's youngest, least likely son. And God's own gift of his own son coming in as a, as a baby. In the main, like, have you ever wondered why God didn't just show up as a king instead of showing up as a baby? I mean, some of that is the idea that, that Jesus would live this sinless life and, and be able to completely relate to what we experience in our humanity. I mean, that's certainly part of it. But there's something about the unassuming innocence and smallness, if that's even a word, of a baby. So he sends his son as a baby into a manger, a son who would then die on a cross to save the world. And he says, in ver- also continuing on in verse 2, out of you will come for me. So there's this ruler that's going to come from Bethlehem, and this ruler is going to be about the things of God. And that's a, that's a huge thing. This ruler is going to be about the things of God. Now, here's why that matters. Micah is speaking into a climate where they've not had good kings. Like the 19 kings of the north that came, you know, like you've got Solomon, and after Solomon, the kingdom is divided. There are 19 kings of the north, 20 kings over the years in the south. All of the 19 kings of the north, bad. They did wicked, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. The vast majority of kings in the south, the kingdom of the south, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Of the Lord. And so when Micah is saying, listen, there's this king that's going to come out out of this little place called, Jerus- uh, called Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. He's going to come out of Bethlehem and he's going to be all about the things of God. He's going to serve God's purposes. He's going to seek God's glory rather than his own. And this ruler will be called a ruler rather than a king because he is to be no rival to the divine king, but to rule 
with due subordination is, is the language of it. And by that, what I mean is, it's not talking about that Jesus not being equal to God the Father. That's not what it's saying here. But that what we find in Jesus' earthly ministry is that he consistently submitted himself to the will of the Father in the way that he described it, right? He says, listen, I don't do anything that the, my Father doesn't tell me, right? This is the language of it. Not my will, but your will be done. This is what we find in Jesus. He's constantly about the things of God, glorifying God, submitting to God. And so who will this ruler be? All the ancient Jewish interpreters regard this ruler as the Messiah. Every single one of them. The testimony of Targums, um, which is also a, a, a Jewish scholar, also favors the messianic interpretation of the prophecy. In, uh, in Barker and Bailey commentary, they say that in, in talking about Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it's among the passages accepted within Judaism applying directly to the Messiah. So here's what we need to understand that. That if this applies directly from the Jewish community related to the Messiah, then whatever happens next with this passage in terms of it coming to fulfillment, logically should be accepted, right? Christians believe that the Messiah is Jesus. It says, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So the scripture actually tells us that Jesus is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. Uh, this is Revelation 22, verse 13. And it means that from the very beginning, Jesus was there. And we don't always think about that very much. But from the very beginning, he was there. There was never a time that Jesus didn't exist. Now, there are some faith practices that will tell you that Jesus is a created being. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus always existed. There was never a time that he wasn't there. As a matter of fact, when you continue moving forward, before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he pre-existed as the second person of the Trinity. We read that in John 17, verse 5, John 17, verse 24. And these passages tell us that there was a relationship of love and fellowship and shared glory that the Father and Son shared in eternity past. Which is, by the way, a weird term, eternity past. The name Jesus was not known as a name for a second person in the Trinity until the angel Gabriel announced it to Mary. So we didn't even know the name of Jesus until it was announced to Mary. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 31. But as the eternal Son existed before he revealed himself, Sorry, the eternal son existed before he revealed himself as Jesus. Before Bethlehem, Jesus was the creator of all things. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 to 17 says it this way. For in him, referencing Jesus, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. His, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is, uh, is the word logos, and it, it is a reference to Jesus. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Knowing that Jesus is from everlasting shows us like a couple of really important things. Number one, it shows us the glory of Jesus that he is far more than just a man. 
And so to treat him, either historically or within the context of the text, as just a mere human being, and I don't mean mere human being from the perspective of being self-deprecating, but the idea that he is more than a man, there he is, he transcends what manhood, what humanity is, is important. His glory is shown in that. It also shows us that the love of Jesus, it shows us the love of Jesus, that he left the glory of heaven and came to earth. You see, when God comes to earth in the form of a man, he reduces himself because he's above mankind. He is supernatural, and that matters. So these are pretty significant things that it shows us. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses uh, 3 to 5, it starts off with, He will shepherd in the strength of Yahweh, right? So this is the idea that, that He's going to do the things of His Father and, that, and nothing's going to get done that isn't from the Father and He's going to move within that strength. But it also says here, Therefore Israel will be abandoned, listen, until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. The woman in labor is also mentioned in Micah chapter 4, verse 9. And then, of course, here again, with the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. This is what we're seeing here. The birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem included within the middle verses. Like if you look at verses 3 to 5, they're packaged together. and, And in the middle of them, you have this messianic language. And so it brings the whole passage together in unity and the identifying subject as being the coming of the Messiah into the world. So you got this beautiful image of what's taking place here. Whose strength he's in, how he's coming into the world, what he's then going to do in the world. Therefore Israel will be abandoned is another part in this passage. Israel will be given up to tribulation, to trial, to difficulty but will still be preserved. In other words, Israel will always exist as a people from this point forward until her mission of delivering the Messiah to mankind can be accomplished. So regardless of what's happening in the exiles, regardless of what's happening with these nations coming before them, regardless of the insecurities that they are experiencing, God will preserve his children. This is what we're saying. And this is important. Until the Messiah comes. The remnant of his brethren shall return. So after the Messiah has been delivered, then the remaining rebellious and scattered Israel will find their way into the fullness of Israel, which is in Christ. Uh, Kaufman's commentaries quotes a guy by the name of Homer Haley. Homer Haley says this, Related to Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, the prophet was looking into the birth of the Messiah and the kingdom that began on Pentecost. The great sign seen by John on Patmos, a woman arrayed with the sun, having the moon under her feet and the crown of stars upon her brow, who gave birth to the man-child, is this same woman, is what this guy is saying. This is what Homer Haley is saying. We carry on, it says, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And the greatness of the ruler from Bethlehem becomes this resting place for his people. 
It becomes foundational. They live not because of them, but because of his greatness. And he will be our peace. It is amazing to me that Micah is speaking to a people who are being told that the Assyrians are coming. And then after the Assyrians are coming, the Babylonians are coming. And after the Babylonians are coming, the Persians are coming. And it's under Persia that people are ultimately able to return back over to Jerusalem, to Israel. But it's amazing to me that even in the presence of this looming battle that's coming, there is this language of peace. It isn't just a ruler from Bethlehem that brings peace. He is peace. As Paul wrote about Jesus in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus, like he is our peace. And there's something beautiful about that. Essentially what he's saying there is that whatever is going on, the person of Jesus is the one that we're able to be secure in and have that as a foundational principle of how to then live. And so even though Micah spent a lot of time preaching about judgment to come, which, to be honest, it's, that's certainly a New Testament language as well. There's, a, there's the kingdom of God, which is amazing, that people are invited into. Salvation comes to man. So there's the message of hope. But there is a message of judgment within the New Testament talking about the end of days. So it's relevant even to today. He was above all a prophet of hope for the future, referencing Micah. God would bring a ruler who would allow the people to live in peace. And Micah gave many details about the coming kingdom of God and the blessings for the entire world. As a matter of fact, in the final chapter of his book, Micah expressed a trust in the Lord that the Lord will accomplish his purposes in the world when society is filled with corruption and violence. Like even in the midst of society that's filled with violence and corruption. Matthew saw Micah's hope for a new ruler uh, in a description of Jesus, of course, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, which we highlighted earlier, but I'll read it now. He says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Prophecy takes us out of our immediate surroundings and gives us a view of a much bigger picture. It's like a step back so that we can see a broader image. And that big picture that the Lord has given us through the prophet Micah is twofold. First, if we live our lives according to God's eternal purposes, he will always surpass our expectations. Always. You talk to anybody who talks about the kindness they experience from God once they commit themselves to him, it's always bigger than what they think. There's always a bigger love, a bigger grace, a bigger kindness than what we expect. Paul talks about it from the perspective of saying, I pray that you will know the love of God that surpasses all knowledge. So in other words, I pray that you're going to know, that you would know the love that you'll never know. Right? You'll never know the fullness of it because you're constantly growing in it and, and recognizing that it's a whole lot deeper and stronger than you ever thought. This truth can bring us to, into a life of hope which is an incredibly exciting place to be. The second thing is that God never leaves loose ends, ever. 
He has a plan for history, and this truth brings us into a life of confidence. You see, confidence because we know that God has a purpose for his children, and he has a purpose for people. Nothing happens by accident. Everything is working towards the culmination of God's plan. And I find that encouraging. I mean, isn't that where you would like to be? Filled with hope and filled with confidence? I know I enjoy that. Even in the times where it's most difficult, I come back to this. And God always surpasses my expectations. And he always finishes what he starts. As a matter of fact, to the believer watching this, hear this. The scripture tells us that he who begun a good work in you will see it to completion. So God always finishes what he starts. Always surpasses what we understand in terms of grace and forgiveness. And always finishes what he starts. Confidence and hope. That is what I want for you for this season. Man, that's what I want for me. And I pray that you will allow the Lord to have the freedom in your life to be able to bring that to you. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that these words that, that are put on page here, Lord, that are spoken on video here, Lord, that... that the only words that we remember, the only words that we be hung on to are the words that, um, that are spoken from you, Lord. And if there's anything of me in this, Lord, that that would just fall away and not be remembered. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody out there in need of confidence, anybody out there in need of hope, that they would open themselves up to you to be able to receive that from you. In your name I pray. Amen.